I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right, well, we are back. And uh, Seth, it's good to be with you today. It is good to be with me today. Yeah, today we're talking about uh, an issue that um, I think for a lot of people who listen to this, they probably have heard the issue and the word before. Others maybe have not. It'll be a little bit new to them. Faithful listeners of the podcast have definitely heard it because today we're talking a little bit more about deconstruction. Deconstruction. A couple of months ago, we did an episode on decolonizing deconstruction, which is all about white European philosophers and the way that they have contributed to the dismantling or picking apart of creeds and scriptures that are written mostly by uh, Middle Eastern uh, brown folks. And how just the irony of that in the current conversations about how people want to decolonize curriculum, which mostly means removing the, inf- the influence of exclusively white Europeaners in favor of more broad diversity voices. But how when that's applied to the church, you actually have documents, scriptures, creeds that are written by non-majority French and German philosophers, but most current deconstruction and a lot of the way people frame it and talk about it and the hermeneutics and the philosophy and the structures of knowing all flow out of basically French and German uh, postmodern or even pre-postmodern, which would just be modern uh, thinkers and feelers. And so I really want people to understand that whenever you're deconstructing something, you're using something else to deconstruct it. There's no such thing as standing in a neutral place. And so we did that episode a couple of months ago. If you haven't listened to that one, I'd recommend going checking that out before you listen to the rest of this one. Yeah, that one's called Decolonizing Deconstruction. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yes, yeah, so that one was mostly about kind of history of ideas and the way it shapes our the different modes by which we process current thinking and feeling we're getting into today. It's a little bit more personal. Some of like the heart reasons that lead people into that path, both good, neutral and or bad. Yeah. So, so why do you, why do we want to talk about this? Uh, one of our good friends, one of my good friends, Josh Butler wrote an article for the gospel coalition on four causes of deconstruction. And it was a yeah, really, J- Josh is a pastor for those that don't know it. Redemption Tempe. Mm-hmm. So he's part of our family of congregations and really just a fun great guy that we get to interact with regularly you're part of the theology team with him and yeah and one of the one of the good things about him is that he did ministry for a long time in portland which is i would say slightly more progressive than gilbert arizona <laughs> than Queen just arizona. a smidge just a notch or two ahead and so he's got a lot more hours in the trenches working through some of the stuff than you and i would i mean i grew up in tempe and did college ministry a bunch there and so it was not exactly surprising when people were going through this stuff but uh, the the hours and reps that he worked through was there, and then he he uh, that article struck quite a, a firestorm on Twitter for those of you who care about those types of fake controversies that rile up Twitter, and he didn't want to podcast with someone disagreed with him, and it was a really helpful back and forth. But we kind of want to process through as pastors uh, some of what they talked about. Well, it was interesting even talking with Josh a little bit after that article came out, and he did experience some critique from it, and I thought the way he answered some of those critiques was really. Uh, just godly in the way he approached it. But I was talking with him more about it. And and what he said, just in terms of how that article even came about is he said he was at some, you know, he had been invited to speak or be part of a panel on something. And, and someone had uh, brought up, you know, a question about deconstruction. And he just sort of mentioned these four different causes that he's thought of. And a lot of people are like, man, that was really helpful. So then he was at another gathering of some pastors and they specifically said, Hey, would you do a talk about those things? And so he's like, yeah, I guess I'll put some stuff together and did a talk. And, and it really just resonated with a lot of the pastors, especially who were ministering in more post-Christian, uh, more progressive kind of cities and contexts where 
a lot of folks are, are really identifying with the idea of deconstruction. And so the feedback he got there was great. And he kept getting asked questions about it. And, hey, would you come do more on this? And he said, you know what, maybe it would just would help if I wrote an article. So he, I think, wrote about a 5,000-word article that got edited down um, by some of his friends at the Gospel Coalition and, and put it out there. And so there's not everything that you could think uh, about it. But, but you know, that was kind of the genesis and the history of that article, which I thought itself was just kind of interesting, that it came out of talking to pastors who are ministering to people who are going through this process of deconstruction and these pastors were going, I need some categories to help understand this better and found what Josh said to be resonant and helpful with their experiences. And so much of this conversation, even how you approach it, I've found in just the days as I've had different conversations has a lot to do with your perspective on, on the whole process. Yeah. So, yeah. And part of what we talked about last time, which I just want to reiterate is that, depending on how you define it and depending on how I do it, but if I'm going to be exclusively positive, you are always being forced to deconstruct something. And so nobody is not deconstructing something. And that's part of what even this podcast is. We're trying to critique that which is hellish both in the church and outside of the church, which yep. is a form of deconstruction. And yeah, even, what you said earlier that there's no neutral spaces is something I just think we forget that all the time. Oh, yeah. We, we believe the, the myth of scientific neutrality that I can just coolly distance myself and do scientific methodology, test, observe, repeat, and that the data will just show what it is. But we're always bringing ourselves to these questions. We're always looking through lenses, our eyes, our emotions, our experiences. And there's just no way to avoid the deeply personal nature of these things, that mm -hmm. all knowledge is fundamentally relational. That's what some epistemologians call a relational epistemology, is you're always persons, subjects, encountering objects. And so we can't not do it that way. What we see distinctively with Jesus is Jesus in the flesh is always deconstructing human traditions. He's deconstructing tradition. And he's saying, you have heard it said, and by that he means the improper interpretation application of the Old Testament that the Pharisees were doing. You have heard it said by them, but I, God, say unto you. And so he's correcting tradition with the word of God. Yeah. And so that's like the healthiest form of deconstruction. But what would be some other words that you might even use? I mean, that is, I guess you could technically describe that as deconstruction. Are, do you prefer that word, or are there other words you would rather, if, if that's what we're trying to do, if that's the goal of it, is not that we're trying to just tear it all down, but we're trying to have a, a, a clearer, more biblical understanding of things. Is there something else you feel like maybe we should talk about that being? Yeah, I prefer the term maturation or correcting tradition with scripture or correction or improvement or sanctification or growth or development. What about reformation? Would that reformation be a good word? Because part that'd of that'd be a lot even what was happening in the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the idea of reformation, which I appreciate, because there's uh, uh, reformation is rooted in a sense of received tradition that there's some gratitude for the history of that tradition and you're trying to make this tradition better. It's not uh, burn it all down. It's not, uh, what's the word? Not rebellion, revolution, right? Revolution yeah. is, uh, this is all trash. We need to start over. Uh, whereas uh, reformation's rooted in gratitude with the desire to see improvement. And so same with Redemption Gateway. Like I don't, I want everyone to be saying like, Part of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther talked about La Ecclesia Semper Reformanda, which means the church must always be reforming itself. 
Yeah. And so, but if we have a heart of... So to the degree that what we're talking about is someone saying, hey, maybe we're getting a little skewed based on some of these traditions and we need to walk in a more biblical path. We need to be reformed and always reforming. We go, yeah, yes and amen. Great. Do it. Go for it. That's what even what we're trying to do in this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And so resisting like revolutionary language in favor of reform, reformation, reformative language, I think is really helpful because we do want to recognize that... Uh, it's, this happens a ton. I see pastors do this where they just love to, um, you know, talk trash about, well, in my youth ministry, it was blah, 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 blah. But now I, like, whatever your youth ministry did somehow contributed to you being here. Right. You're now a youth pastor. Yeah. Like, is, yeah. and, and I know that there are abuses and misuses and differences, but, you know, the opposite of abuse is not non use, it's proper use. And, yeah working through some of these things is I think really important. Well, and even the first word you used when I asked you for a list is you said maturing. Yes. And that's interesting just to go like, Hey, the process of maturing in necessarily involves this reforming, this kind of best kind of deconstruction. That is the process of maturing and raising up children of the faith. Like I think about even my son who he thinks his baby sisters and mommy's tummy and Jesus wants to be in his heart yep right and and when he grows older he'll understand you know the way that semen implants into eggs and the and lands in the uterine wall and then grows over time and blah 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 but that's that's just, it's an inevitable and necessary maturation process and so some of what i hear is people who grew up in the church and they're explained the faith when they're when they're in third grade pastors explain the faith to them like they're in third grade and then now they're 17 and they're hearing people explain the faith and like they're 17. They're like, why don't you tell me this sooner? It's like, well, you were in third grade. Like that's, yeah. so there's an inevitability of like simplifying yeah. and uh, adding, adding layers to things like, uh, and it's just important to understand that even like our sinful ears don't always hear what we're being told. This, this happens all the time where someone will come to the church like, Oh, I've never heard the Bible preached like this. I've never mm-hmm. heard the gospel preached like this. And they tell me where they went to church. And I think like, yes, you did. You just didn't hear it. Yeah. And it, was, it was said. It was spoken. It was communicated. You didn't necessarily hear it. Yeah. Like, I, I, I know that preacher, and I've listened to some of his sermons, and you heard the gospel, and you heard the word. Uh, maybe just you weren't in a place where you could hear it yet. Maybe you weren't listening for what matters to you now, and you're a different person now. And so I, I, I lean away from a lot of the deconstruction language just because it does tend to feel like my, my close friends or people in my circle who are deconstructing it tends to be fueled by what feels like more of an, an angry situation. And there may be gratitude there, but I tend to not see as much of the gratitude. And I just think that going back to Romans one, this is Thanksgiving week after all that the root of all sin is lack of gratitude. Mm. And, and I, I, wrote yeah. a blog, I wrote a blog post on that, about how the most important spirit discipline is practice of gratitude. And so if you can't wander into these waters, with real sober gratitude for the fact that God works through broken systems, institutions all the time, broken parents all the time, uh, then we're maybe not ready to do it yet and not ready to go into that path. And so Jesus models for us this healthy uh, deconstructing or reforming of unhealthy or not fully healthy or only partially healthy traditions and institutions. And the big contrast there is Satan also deconstructs. He says, you've heard God say, but I say unto you, did God really say? And it's this eroding, uh, it's I'm just asking questions, mm-hmm. but the questions are designed to designed to erode trust and, and 
and bridge relationships. Mm-hmm. And some questions do create sin. And we got to understand that even asking certain questions is, is improper. Yeah. And, and by what I mean asking certain questions, I mean, um, like I remember someone asked me one time in high school, uh, like, what do you think that girl looks like naked? And I'm like, you just basically created sin in my heart. So if <laughs> right. You, like, and so some questions are not helpful. And we got to understand that um, re- discerning what those are and what those aren't is helpful. But Satan appearing to Adam and saying, did God really say not to do the thing you know, clearly know he said is really unhelpful. Yeah. And that, whereas the Christ-like way is deconstructing unhealthy traditions or reforming traditions, mm-hmm. the satanic way is deconstructing the authority of God in favor of the authority of self or some other human institution or tradition. So let's talk a little bit about that article. And again, we'll link to this article if people want to read it for themselves. Um, just maybe outline it at the, at, off the top here. Uh, it's called Four Causes of Deconstruction. And those causes are what? So the first one, Josh Butler. The first one, which I would say in most of my closest friends who have, have like wandered into some type of deconstructing path, probably represents the highest percentage for me. Yeah, and and I want to dig in. Let's just let's just click them off though. So the okay. first one is church hurt. First one's church hurt. The second one is poor teaching. Third one is desire to sin. Fourth one is street cred, yep. and uh, you know we'll talk about these. But it seems like there was a, he got a lot of pushback on the three and four, uh, less on the first two, um, and we'll actually talk about even some additional categories that some people that pushed back on him would add, and we'll analyze that in a minute. But yeah, t- talk through this first one. So. The first reason he gives, you said it's the most common thing you're experiencing as you talk to people who are in a process like this, is church hurt. Yeah, I think part of it is you hear this vision and this passion and this like rightful um, application of the scriptures on here's what a loving people of God can and should be like. Here's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus talks about, you know, leave your father and mother and follow me and I'll give you this, this eternal family, this people of God the ones who are knit together in love and, and bound are bound together by covenant into the family of God to be light to the nations, that they should together submit to the Lordship of Jesus and uh, outdo one another in showing love and bear one another's burdens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you hear this like, wow, I want to be part of that community. And then you get into a community and it's some far shadow away from that. Mm-hmm. And people hurt you and people disappoint you, disappoint you. Uh, and people are not fully sanctified, and they're not fully submitted to the Spirit, and they tend to feel a lot like non-Christians sometimes in a way that makes you go, what really is the difference between sure. Christians and non-Christians? Mm-hmm. Does the Spirit really change people? Is the church really a holy people of God? Can I trust these people to love me based on how I've been hurt? Another thing I see all the time is, like, especially on church staffs, people get on a church staff, and there's different expectations coming from multiple directions. And then all of a sudden your partnership and your identity in the local body of Jesus is bound up with the paycheck and that gets wonky. Mm. And all of a sudden the way you get into the people of God is by Jesus performing for you. But now there's some position you have in the people of God that's somewhat tied to your performance as an employee. Yeah. And that gets people's wires crossed and that's, that can be difficult to process and handle. And it, it's disjointing and uh, you know, think about the Michael Scott thing. I don't, people think their jobs depend on their performance. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And there, are, there can be some church situations where it's like, you're, you're just, once you're in, you're in and you never have to do anything. But 
I've seen a lot of people really spiral in their faith when maybe they're in a role at the church that's just they're not good at it and they have to get moved on in the name of stewarding people's tithe dollars well and sure. people's well and what a lot and of that the, hurts. I'd say most of the church hurt probably comes from people being disappointed by leaders. Yes. It is interesting though cuz you know being on the other side of it I see the church hurt that leaders experience by being disappointed by how they're treated by people yeah. in the church as well. Yeah. And I don't think that's the most common thing, but you mentioned folks who serve especially, in church staff. Especially in the last 18 months, I've seen a lot of pastors leave the pastorate and do some type of deconstruction thing because their churches just crushed them or something like that. Yeah, I, and, and conversely, people get hurt by pastors. I thought we were friends, but really it was just kind of not what I thought it was, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And so some of this church hurt is people are hurt because someone in leadership or someone in their community sinned against them. A lot of it is that. A lot of it is that. Yeah, I would say a good majority of that is that. But sometimes people feel hurt, not necessarily because there was sin, but because they just feel hurt. Yeah. Right? Um, I'm not your best friend. I wanted to be your best friend. Uh, I was not selected to be a leader of something, and I wanted to be. Right. I applied for the job. I didn't get it. Uh, I felt unincluded in some social process that the person legitimately should not have included me in because they had X, Y, and Z boundaries. I uh, yeah. missed out on the thing because I had other priorities at that time. And now I feel behind the curve and that hurts. So some of the church hurt is just the nature of being disappointed in a fallen world, the pain of our limits, the pain of our own boundaries, the pain of other people's boundaries. And some of it's volitional sinfulness, intentional or unintentional, conscious or unconscious that really hurts people. Yeah. Well, I think what I have the biggest just kind of heart for is the folks who really were hurt, right? Like, you know, I put my confidence in this leader. Meanwhile, I find out they were living a secret life. You know, I'm in meetings with this person where I'm constantly being berated and yelled at and all sorts of anger is spewing out at me. And I'm going, wait a minute, this is the same person that gets up on Sundays and tells me that love is the most important commandment. What do I do with this? And, you know, I... It was like the inc- oh, got the fired all of a sudden from something or I got cut off from something and there wasn't much explanation and I was asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement or, you know, and it's just like this whiplashy, you know, um, or I, I came to church leadership because I'd been mistreated in some way and my, the abuse that I brought forward got downplayed, minimized, covered up, explained away. I actually became blamed for it. Right. I mean, so th- there's those sorts of things that, man, you hear those stories and you go like, golly, it really stinks. You know, I uh, and it's not unreasonable that people would then project some of their pain from people onto God because mm-hmm. people are made to be God's image bearers. Yeah. And what makes me think of, you know, my daughter recently was at a thing and that at some other place and she heard she was in the restroom and overheard these women talking trash about our church. And uh you know, she told me about it, and I said, well, honey, welcome to the fallen bride of Jesus. Yeah. And um, I don't want to minimize that, but I also go like, it, man, it really, until the Lord returns, we're going to have church hurt. Um, now, some of the church hurt is worse than others, and uh, and I think for people who have gone through those especially traumatic church hurt experiences, it's not surprising to me that they would begin to question their faith or question the validity of this stuff. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. And even going back to some of the way the early church, even now the way the Anglican or the Roman Catholic Church talk about pastors, they describe them as vicars, which means representatives. 
and even the way the Pope is described as the vicar of Christ, like there is this reality that we as spiritual fathers and mothers are meant to represent like the parenthood of, of God in various directions and various seasons and places. And so that can be really healing or really hurting. And a lot of that deconstruction or that reformation that's necessary is a complicated emotional and intellectual process of unwinding some of those things. Yeah. And so I would say of, of the people that like, if I can immediately think of five people on top of my head that I'd put in that some type of deconstructing thing, five of them, this is one of, or the prom primary reason. Yeah. Like it's like, even if there are other reasons, this was like the, the seed that led to the uncovering of other reasons. Yeah. This was the impetus, the spark, the catalyst that move people forward. And one of the things I find too is uh, when people bring forth hurt and when people bring forth pain, it's really important. And this is hard for, for you and me in particular because we really love the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. We really love the local church. We believe in it. There's yep. no, you know, like uh, there's no amount of sin in the next year that I think could make me say, we should maybe not, you know, not do local churches anymore. Yeah. Right? Cause I, I really believe and I see the fruit of it, but people who really love something are prone to be defensive of it mm -hmm. in a way that short circuits the emotional process or the conversational process. And actually what I found is helpful to people who are deconstructing is to not try to defend yeah. the churches. No, no, it wasn't that bad. No, like yeah. maybe you just created this pain in your heart because you're bad expectations or maybe you just, just be like, yeah, well, and that's what I appreciate about Josh's article is for each of these four things, he also offers a kind of gospel-shaped cure, right? And for this one, he talks about grief and lament, that um, the cure is not to go, well, it all just needs to be thrown out. The cure is to go, no, what happened was real, what happened was sinful, what happened was bad, what happened was painful, and you bring those laments to God, right? Tons of the Psalms are filled with lament. I feel like we've had conversations, I'm not sure on this podcast, but I know for sure in our church life, I think about the Talking to Humans podcast that Vicky and Mark do. I know they've talked about lament and that if we can have these muscles of grieving and lamenting real hurt that happens, um, that can be a, a path toward healing out of these church hurts. Yeah. And I think it's important too that we understand that the responsibility to grieve and lament is both on church leaders and on the wounded people. Oh, you feel hurt by the church? You should grieve and lament. What? is what it ends up sometimes feeling like is you have all the responsibility to heal and process through this. Whereas I'm increasingly feeling like part of my responsibility as a leader is to grieve and lament with people Yeah, to the degree that they want me to be there. Sure. Sometimes I found like me being a pastor, a local church, I get in the way of their grief process because my very presence is triggering to them. And we can argue all day long whether that should or shouldn't be triggering to them, but it is and yeah. I'm not helping. So right. sometimes me getting close is helpful. Sometimes me getting far is helpful trying to think through what the need is as people are feeling hurt by the church. Yeah. So let's go to the second reason. The second reason that Butler gives is poor teaching. And uh, I think, I mean, poor teaching is so broad that, uh, right, what does that mean? But it, it seems especially maybe kind of what comes to mind as I read through it and as I kind of know what he's talking about is sort of what you said earlier of that, you know, biblical truths were presented to me in this overly simplistic uh, way. And now I'm, seeing that there's more complexity and there's more nuance and there's more depths and there's more shades and there's more, and I'm starting to question, well, what else have I been taught that you didn't tell me everything about? What else have you kept back? Right. And, and you used an example, I guess, of, you know, a spot where you'd go, well, I wasn't at 17 going to explain <laughs> when you were in third grade, I wasn't going to explain it to you like you're in seven, like you're 17. 
But I would say there are a lot of, you know, churches that people have experienced and teaching that people have experienced that kind of remains in that overly simplistic 2D kind of explanation of the faith, right? Like an example I think of pretty quickly is like just even how we got the scriptures, right? Some, some churches talk about and some people are sort of taught almost like it was just this dictation, you know, from God's mouth to the pen of the writers and they just wrote exactly what they kind of heard um, and yeah, a lot of Christians have a, a Muslim view of the scriptures and, yeah. a, and a Mormon view of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, right. right. But when you actually study history and you study the process, and then you even think about, well, the process of canonization, why did these writings get recognized as scripture and not these ones? You start to go, whoa, this is not sort of what I thought. I kind of got the impression that this book just dropped from heaven. And now I realize there's lots of human human like process in it and oof, that scares me yeah so that would be just an example of potentially poor teaching yeah especially if you grew up in a church that loves to dog on the roman catholic church and you realize how how important romanism was or at least the church in rome and the papacy was in assembling some of the canon yeah. like i grew up hearing two things the roman catholic church totally sucks always and two <laughs> the bible was written just like fell from heaven like the quran yeah and then all of a sudden you find out the process and you're like realizing that bishops were involved and it was a human process and you go like, well, that's some dissonance I have to deal with. Right. And, and yeah, so when we, when we'll say on a Sunday morning, maybe the whole Bible is written by God and it's God's word, but then we'll also do a nine hour seminar on a Saturday called Scribe and Scripture that unpacks the canonization process and the history of what it means that the scriptures are fully God and fully divine and fully human, just like the person Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Mm-hmm. And so trying to make environments like that for people can be helpful. But what I found also is when I talk to folks who are like, I was never told this. It's like, well, this is in libraries everywhere and you didn't go look for it. And so there's this, there is this personal responsibility that I feel to tell people. Like if you think that you were raised on like a naive view of the Bible, uh, you can be mad at your pastor all he wants. You know, you like I can be mad that my civic only has X number of horsepower, but it's like, dude. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. I also think like, like I know of particular like traditions that would um, very much say like, hey, if you even start reading any yeah. of these broader perspectives, you're you're on your way, right? Like, like you and I both have a lot of appreciation for N.T. Wright. Yeah. Right? And there's plenty about N.T. Wright that I don't agree with, but there's a lot that I find incredibly helpful. Well, the, you know, the tradition that I was kind of brought up in as a pastor would be like, you don't even read N.T. Wright. Mm. Like if you even read him, you're on your path toward yeah. liberalism. That's helpful to me because I was, so, I was not raised in an environment that told no. me that there were burn books. But if like, yeah, if it's like, hey, here's the approved list, here's the non-approved list, and it's like you you start doing your own work and and now you're going to, now I'm experiencing <laughs> church hurt and poor teaching. And um, I think a lot of people go, I never even had permission to explore what else was out there because I was, you know, it was this very constrictive here's what's okay to, to know. And mm. man, now I, I get to college or I go to another church experience or I meet these other Christians and I go, oh man, this thing's much broader, much more, you know, there's a lot more to it than I realized. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the only thing I heard growing up was if you read a bunch of theology books, you'll become smug and think you're better than people and that was just true. So <laughs> <laughs> sure. at least it was true for a little while. So, Well, I think it's especially relevant because a lot of the folks I know that are deconstructing, um, 
are coming out of what you might call more fundamentalist traditions. Yeah. And the fundamentalist traditions don't tend to say, hey, read broadly, eat the fish, spit out the bones. They tend to go, no, it's a closed system. Here's the few people that are allowed. Don't even go elsewhere because you're going to get into error. And if, if that's kind of the environment you grew up in, it, it wouldn't surprise me that you would sort of be exposed to other things and go, oh, man, like what else were they hiding? Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I think that, like, I, I mostly appreciate John MacArthur. Like, he's, a, I think, a generally good theologian in a variety of ways. And, you know, fidelity over 50 years is really important. But I do feel like I've been in some circles where it feels like the Trinity is like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Writings of John MacArthur. Like if you, <laughs> sure. Like, it's like, and and I don't think that he wants it to be that way. At least I don't, I hope he doesn't want it to be that way. But there is like a. I yeah, was, I, I've been in environment. I've, I've literally seen people ask him. I've been in places where people have asked him, would he sign their MacArthur study Bible? Yeah. And I'm just like, everything about this just feels wildly uncomfortable Yucky, 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 yucky. And, uh. Yeah, I was in a room where someone, so Wayne Grudem came and taught. He wrote a systematic theology book, and he was a general editor of the ESV study Bible. Someone asked him to sign the ESV study Bible, and he's like, no, I'll sign my theology book, but I won't <laughs> sign that Bible. Like, that feels like a great recipe for getting struck by lightning. <laughs> sure. Well, but but and my problem isn't necessarily with MacArthur in that. It's yeah. like going. It's the cult of there's personality. A, there's a culture where people are going, hey, will you sign my Bible? It's like, Ugh. Yeah, I don't like that at all. Not a fan. So some of that, that teaching and the approach to teaching and the bad teaching that comes along with it is there has to be a contestability to really everything besides the scriptures. And trying to admit what we know for certain or with as much certainties as humanly possible and what is on our next tier and what's on the next tier is helpful. There's a, a guy, I think his name is Gavin Ortland, just wrote a book called Theological Triage. Maybe it was Dane Ortland. One of those, one Ortland, of those Ortland boys. One of those Ortland boys. They're yeah. cranking stuff out. Yeah, on theological triage. It's like, how do you know what's of central importance, of first importance, and what's of second or third or fourth or fifth importance? It's not to say those things aren't important, but there's only some things that are of first importance. Yeah. And so wrestling through some of those things is helpful. The other thing I would say, part of the poor teaching in the deconstruction process is sometimes then people will bump into, you know, they'll they'll go from one kind of poor teaching to another kind of poor teaching. Yes. Right. I think about especially like Matthew Vines, who's done a lot of just absolute, you know, interpretive gymnastics to try to reinterpret the Bible to not exclude homosexuality. And uh, you go like, man, okay. <laughs> There's also, I mean, that I go, hey, read Matthew Vines, but just understand he's coming down in a place that's different from everyone in the history of biblical interpretation. Um, and so it is interesting even when, it, but I think this is part of what happens is if we, when you've been told, Hey, here's the few people that are okay. It makes sense to me then that you would swing and go, well, everything else is okay. And I'm more likely to buy everything else. Everyone else is saying, because I feel like it's been hidden from me. And, uh, so I think there's a danger in those directions too. Yeah. I think part of it, even when it comes to good teaching is, uh, we one of the helpful ways I think G.K. Chesterton talks about tradition is he says it's it's the democracy of the dead, huh. meaning if democracy means everyone gets a vote, tradition means everyone, including dead people, get a vote. And so there is a weight a to the history of the church. I think the last two thousand years. And when I say church history, I don't mean just religious right in the Americas the last sixty years, which is what most people think when they talk about tradition. Mm. But I mean, if you go back to Aquinas or Augustine or early church fathers, dedicate mothers who are writing St. Catherine, these different people, there's like, trying to give votes on my mind 
to even those who've gone before us to the grave yeah. and will rise with us one day. Like that's the healthiest form of tradition is democracy that gives votes to the dead. And so a lot of the questions that we've been asking are not even a little bit new. Yeah. Like Augustine was wrestling with authority of God and sexuality 1500, 1600 years ago. It's not like all of a sudden the sixties gave rise to questions about what's legitimate and illegitimate to do with our genitals. Like that's, that's not a modern invention, right. and, but we act like it is. And it's like, Oh, now we have all these new questions. Sure. And now we have these new issues. And, but even before the time of Jesus, people are asking, does our Bible, does our body tell us the truth about what our body's for or not? And Plato sure. said no. And Aristotle said yes. And here we are today dealing with the same questions 2000 plus years later. And so trying to even ask our questions in the context of like world history, not just in the context of, uh, pre like modern or postmodern American politics in the last 50 years is really important. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of like the good teaching, bad teaching can be corrected is by learning from those who've gone before us, not just the blind leading the blind of these postmodern people in their thirties and forties and right now. Yeah. Well, and I feel like even this podcast we're doing right now is an effort to try to provide additional deeper uh, teaching where we're going into things that we just, you wouldn't go in to on a Sunday, not because there's things you're trying to hide, but I mean, you and I have the experience. A lot of people don't have of having to stand up and go, okay, I've got 35 minutes to say something about this passage and try to help it connect with people that are 12 and people that are 82 from all kinds of religious and irreligious and other religion backgrounds. And like, I, I I'm just not, you know, I'm kind of going like, okay, <laughs> I've got this thimble that I got to fill up and give to you, you know, and, and I got it. So, so anyway, so I do, I have some grace for like, yeah, there's always going to be deeper stuff you weren't taught. If the only place you ever taught was Sunday sermons. Yeah. And, and I think that that's seasonal in the life of people. Like I think even the way that we think about humans grow, like there are growth spurts, there's pubescence, there's menopause, there's decay, there's recovery from surgery, there's, recovery from a finger surgery there's recovery from your femur bone being cracked and and what you're what you can do the rate at which you can grow your appetites they wax and wane and so yeah. there will be seasons like someone came up to me two Sundays ago it's like hey I really want to start like doing serious work theologically and really wrestling with history and tradition and process and can you recommend like some meaty meaty grade a thick beef reading for me he's like i already read all of systematic theology by grudem and i want to read the next level so i told him to get reformed dogmatics the four volumes set by herman bovink mm -hmm. and i was like see you in four years because <laughs> you know, right. it's that's uh, i was like the guy told me what he wanted and i gave yeah, him what could. he i gave him what he asked for right but i think 10 percent of people will have an appetite like that ever right. in their life sure and even people who have that type of appetite only have it for a while. A percentage of their life. Yeah. And so there will be seasons where reading Psalm 23 on repeat for six months is just what our hearts need. Yeah. Sure. And there will be seasons where reading through Reformed Dogmatics by Herman Bovink yep. slowly over the course of four years is just what our hearts need. And trying to make space for other people in their seasons and mm -hmm. the various things they grow. And you think about how like the main metaphor we get, like a vine. Yeah. Like vines spend time not bearing fruit. They spend time bearing fruit. They do this in the summer, they do this in the winter. So our spiritual life in our, in our reformation of our own hearts will be seasonal as well. Yeah. So number three um, was, again, one that got some pushback. Uh, Josh got some pushback on it. It was desire to sin. 
So people are deconstructing their faith because of a desire to sin. Um, and I think this got pushed back from people who said like, wait a minute, I, I don't, I didn't go like, Hey, I just, I want to come up with some excuse to sin. That's not why I'm asking these questions. Um, but in pastoral experience, we're kind of going like, no, it does seem like that's at least in the mix. And I don't know that it's explicitly in the mix. I don't know that people are like, would come to you and say, Hey, I'm asking these questions because I really just want to sleep with my boyfriend and I'm looking for a reason to do it. But what we would kind of see as pastors is sometimes that is in the equation is um, it's easier for me to deflect the conversation to something else. Yeah. Right. I think about the, the woman at the well in John chapter four. Right. And as soon as she realizes he's a prophet, she doesn't want to talk about that. You know, she has had five husbands and this one's not her husband. She wants to talk about, well, now where exactly should we be worshiping on that mountain or that mountain? Right. It's kind of this, it's a deflection strategy. Um, and so it, I, I mean, I've told you, I've said, listen, man, if I ever walk away from the faith and I realize deconstruction and walking away from the faith are not the same thing. Yeah. A lot of times it seems like deconstruction leads to walking away from the faith. So to the degree that that's true, you know, I've kind of said, if I walk away from the faith, it will not be because it's not true. It will be because I want to sin. Like I have seen too much. I have seen too much Jesus. He's shown up in my life. There are things that have happened to me and around me and to others that I cannot explain away. Um, but I could imagine a scenario in which because of hurts I've had or because of other things or because of just lots of reasons, I might go, yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. And it would be hard to have the kind of gumption to say, no, I just want to sin. Yeah. I, it would be way easier to go, well, you know, here's these other things. Yeah. I've, so I've been reading crime and punishment by Dostoevsky, which is mostly because everything else I've since I fi- since I finished school, reading anything besides like the Gospel of John has felt like you know, chewing on sawdust. I'm like, I just want to try some different flavors. So you thought I'll just pick up a light novel? I was like, <laughs> I was thinking, uh, you know, a lot of us go with John Grisham, or uh, I don't know, you know Nicholas is. Sparks. Like that's more of like our speed of uh, novels. So yeah, well, yeah. This, I'm not much of a novel reader anyway, and I'm like, this is I knew this is a miserable read, whether you're in a good place or a bad place. So. If it's feeling miserable, but he, one of the characters, they're having this rational discussion and, and the guy says, one of the guys says, we all know that rationality is just a slave of the passions. Mm. Meaning they're arguing back and forth about something and he kind of cuts through it and goes, okay, so what do we want to do here? Because let's just be honest, we're constructing this scaffolding of intellectual inquiry to try to justify what we want anyway. That's what I see a lot in Christian apologetics is uh-huh. people really love Jesus and they're trying to come up with a good intellectual reason for it. And at the end of the day, they just love Jesus. Yeah. And, and conversely, mm-hmm. right, people just love their sin. And so they're trying to find up some like intellectual scaffolding to justify that desire. But this idea that the, that the heart leads the head, not the head, the heart feels pretty uh, resonant with me. And I've had some people who, you know, it's like, especially on LGBTQ issues, like I just really want to do this. And I know what the text says, but, um, yeah, I guess I just don't think Paul's inspired anymore. Not because they like think that they did some work on it, but that's where it starts. I just want to do this. Right. And it follows that. I don't think that everyone who's deconstructing, this is a reason. Yeah. And I don't think it's all sexual. Like, I think there's some people who just really want to not forgive and want to hold on to bitterness and want to, uh, be upset and working through that would be too painful to them. They sure. think, 
Like I have, uh, I have a friend who uh, has a, a pretty firm view in like that abortion should be legal until 40 weeks or the time really from that view. And I remember asking them about how they came to that view, where it came from. And they talked about how they had a stillborn child at 39 something weeks, uh, a number of decades ago. And they came, the, the priest came and the, this woman's obviously a mess as you should be. Sure. And she's asked the priest, should I, do I have to have a funeral? Cause I just really don't want to do that. And the priest says, well, actually, uh, the child doesn't have a soul until it takes a breath. So you don't have to have a funeral. This is actually not a person. It was just still a fetus. It doesn't, the child doesn't become a person until it takes a breath. Wow. And so this woman who's now one of the main coping mechanisms she's been leaning on for X number of long, long, long years, like for her to change that view, for her to submit that view to the scriptures mm-hmm. would require her to be re-traumatized and relive and reprocess and the emotional like work. Yeah. Like it'd be like you had an arm break and the arm was healed incorrectly. You have to go back there and re-break that bone. Yeah. And so, well, that, that sounds a little more like the poor teaching thing. Yes. My, my point here, than on, the like desire to sin. Yeah. So, so my, my point on this one was, um, the pain it would take to mm. undo that, that like, so that's a, that's a sinful view. Like that's sure. Humans aren't humans until they take a breath right. that like, yes, continue to prematurely end the life of humans because they don't have a breath till they're born and to propagate that and to advocate for that and to work for that and to sell that and to spill that narrative. Um, so she's, she's sinning to some degree in ignorance and sinning. She's sinning because of poor sin, but to really, to undo that, that work for her would be like when, as soon as she told me that, and I was like, kind of like I was weeping with her. She told me the story and I'm going, the amount of emotional work it would take, to change that view and to admit that and this woman spent a lot of time campaigning and activating for abortion rights and on that side and trying to demonstrate and and so to admit yeah that you've been sinning in your activism for 30 years uh is sometimes too hard a pill to swallow sure and it would require totally re-traumatization and the amount of emotional work that would take to have to go and relive and then think through what about this child that I lost and it was a baby was made in the image of God. It was a human. It was a person. Yep. It wasn't just uh, a failed, you know, yep. bodily process. And so, so that even that desire to sin, like the pain of saying no to what I've thought was good and learning that that is not good yep. is sometimes what it takes, like what prevents people from uh, landing in a healthier place on their views of things. Sure. And so, even as we talk about like desire to sin, sometimes it's not just hedonistic. I want to pursue pleasure at all costs. Sometimes it's like the desire to remain heels dug in, in a worldview that serves our survival mechanisms. Yeah. Right. And so that kind of obstinacy or hard heartedness or, or uh, folly, I'm, I can't be taught because to be taught would be too painful to change my views would require. This is like a lot of people I talk to leaving the LDS church. Like some people become absolutely convinced it's false, but they're like, but I can't, Yeah, 
I yep. can't come leave because the pain of doing right would be too much. So I'm just sure. going to continue to do wrong. Yep. And so sometimes sin isn't just like, it's not just people want to do what they want sexually. It's, it's a, the sin is bigger than that. It's like, I just want the status quo to keep it riding. Yeah. Cause the pain of undoing my status quo is too great. And I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. So let's go to the last one. The last one was, uh, Josh called it street cred, which is funny. Um, but I think what he's just talking about is going, it's fitting in. It's saying, hey, there's a dominant view in culture that does not appreciate Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, especially the limitations of following Jesus. Um, and and that's hard to live with. It's hard to identify yourself as a Christian. It's hard to kind of be in the public square and be taken seriously as a Christian. And so one of the one of the causes, he would say, of deconstruction is kind of a... Uh, I want to fit in for me to live as a faithful, bold Christian is just going to be too costly in my relational and maybe career and other things. And so, um, again, this wouldn't necessarily be what someone would say, like, here's why I'm asking these questions, but it might be kind of a tacit motivation going on. Yeah. Especially with social media, you get a lot of likes and you get told you're brave and you get labeled courageous for just taking shots at, people you know telling people it's not i've been in there i've seen behind the scenes you know like there's stories to be told and books to be sold and uh, a lot of money to be made in you know dumping on evangelicals mm-hmm. and so just acknowledging that and again that's not like street cred goes both directions sure. some people stay evangelicals because they want to be street creds because of street yeah. cred some people like become ex-evangelicals because of street cred well, and, and this is, you know, as I heard and interacted with some of the pushback against Josh on this article, th- this was a big part of it. People were saying, it cost me a ton to deconstruct my faith. It cost me a ton to, you know, I, I started asking questions and I got shunned by my church community. I started, you know, reading these other books and people told me, oh, you're on the path to heresy. You know, I started embracing this view or that view or that view and like my whole relational world's been upended. How could you possibly say that I'm doing this for street cred when all this did was cost me. Um, and I think so, so that's, that's part of the critique. Well, and I think it part of that critique is reasonable because you're always gaining and losing influence at the same time. Sure. Right. Like if, if you Luke Simmons come to me and the other elders of redemption gateway and are like, yeah, I don't know if I think the Bible's authoritative anymore. I'm really questioning that you would lose a lot of influence pretty quickly over our church. Yeah. And that, but there'd be other circles that would welcome you with open arms very quickly and say, yeah, come over here where the Bible's not that authoritative church. And sure. You're, you got a lot of gifts and you can use them here. And oh so, yeah. There would be a lot of deconstruction podcasts that I would get invited to talk on. Yeah. And you, you could wrote a, te- you could write a tell all book. My 12 years as an evangelical mega church pastor and all my regrets and why it's all crap, you know, and that book would be sold. Right. And you'd make money on it. What book wouldn't sell is, you know, 18 years in the trenches. <laughs> right. That won't sell? Dang it. That's the one I was going to write. Yeah. Not till you hit 50-something years. You okay. think Eugene Peterson wrote that book, The Pastor. That's right. But, but uh, you know, behind the scenes, how the sausages made stuff. And so there is this reality that there are, like, society's not a monolith. There's not, like, one they. There's not a one them, a decision-making, decision-making body. There's this reality that there's always pockets that you're gaining and losing influence with. And you come down hard on this here, that makes you go up with those people and down with those people. You come down hard on that there, that makes you go up with those people and down with those people. And so 
uh, like there's, I'm sure people who are still pastors who are staying pastors for street cred. And I'm sure there are people who are no longer Christians because they're no longer Christians for street cred. And again, one of the things Butler says in the beginning of his article is like, this is not an exhaustive list. This is are some examples based on what I've seen, but the pull to belong is very strong in relational people, made in the image of God, who is love, this, this desire to be approved of and to belong is deep in the heart of all of us. There's this book called How to Think by a guy named Alan Jacobs, which is phenomenal. That's all about the social process of thinking and feeling and how the desire to be in what he what he says that C.S. Lewis says is called the inner ring, mm-hmm. this belief that I'm in the inner circle and I, and I see and we're all together that there's always this inner ring phenomenon pulling us into what are the right people saying, thinking, and doing, and I'll be a part of that group. And it's in-group, out-group, it's us, them, it's the other, it's the us. And that whole process is always at work in the hearts of humans. And if people who are deconstructing are saying that's not part of the process, that's just not how humans work, that's not good sociology, that's not good psychology. And being able to admit, and this is one of the things I think is important for us who have who are still evangelicals or those who are leaving evangelicalism is just to admit the mixed motives in our hearts all the time. Yeah. Like the desire to belong and to have street cred is always some type of factor in our decision-making. And I think part of the call to follow Jesus is to try to mortify that and pursue faithfulness over fruitfulness and to pursue uh, like, like submission to the Lord over submission to man and to pick fear of God over fear of man as much as possible. But we don't do that perfectly. And, there's just this reality that even doing this podcast, you and I sitting here, there's a lot of listeners and it's, and it's, I would prefer that they all like me. I don't prefer to be non-liked. <laughs> sure. Right. But I know some of these words we're saying will just naturally make our stock go up with some and naturally make it go down with others. And that's just the reality. And I, and trying to not be cognizant of that or governed by that or submit to that or be tossed to and fro by that because public opinion is all over the place all the time. And the only right side of history is on the side of history with the Lord, not some local movement of what's going on. And so street cred is certainly it's in the mix in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think we're kind of nearing a spot where we need to wrap up for this time. It would be interesting to come back and have a conversation, um, about, you know, really interacting with some of the critiques of, of these four points. And I'd love to even, you know, dig deeper into like, how would you answer those? How would you, because I, I, frankly, I was just sort of shocked by the level of pushback, right? It, somebody I saw had tweeted, well, apparently you can deconstruct Christianity. You just can't deconstruct deconstruction. Um, and, and, and yet I, I, I always want to have this perspective that doesn't just go, ah, those stupid deconstructors. I want to go, well, what's going on there? And, and I know a number of people who particularly have like a big part of their mission field are people who are going through some sort of process of deconstruction. And so to just sort of write them all off or, go, oh, well, this is all stupid and this is all bad and this is all is is not helpful in terms of trying to engage and reach them. So that could be maybe a, a conversation for another time. But but uh, this has been, I think, just a good overview, at least of Josh's article, and people can dig into that more if they want. I, we've probably gone deeper on it than his article did, uh, but it's still worth checking way out. Way deeper. Sorry, yeah. Josh, way deeper. Um, any other uh, just kind of closing thoughts? Yeah, I we were in London this past week, and I we walked past this thing that I thought was really funny it was this picture i don't know if you can put this on the notes or not but there's this it's called deconstruct uk yeah and i don't know of a way to put it we'll, we'll look into that but it's funny because you and i walked by it and we both had the same like oh boy that, yeah so part of it is there's something there there's these rules that you can't break down the front face or the facade of these ancient buildings 
Well, you can rip. This it. is a this was a a building kind of right off of Hyde Park, which would be kind of like London's version of Central Park. Just beautiful. Yes. We had this great walk through the leaves and kind of come out and right facing the park is this building. Yeah, and, and the, it was just a facade with nothing behind it. Yeah, so there's this poster of our deconstructuk.com, which I thought was just going to be some anti-evangelicals thing, but that's my Americanism. Not, <laughs> I don't think anybody in London cares about yeah. any of this stuff as much to agree to. But they had ripped out the whole, all the guts of the building. There's nothing behind it, and all that was left was the facade, literally the front face of it, and how there's like these rules about you can't change the facade, but you can change the guts of it. And one of my fears in a lot of this deconstruction stuff is that people maintain the facade of Christianity, but they lose the guts and the heart of Christianity. Mm, yeah. Is you use all the right language, you say Jesus, you say Bible, you say scriptures, you say spirit, but you've filled it with all of this postmodern, self-helpy, neo-progressive meaning that basically equals Jesus exists to help you do what feels right in your heart. Mm. And that conscience is king over the scriptures, over Jesus. And that if I don't feel bad about it, then I shouldn't feel bad about it. And this idea of maintaining the facade, the external structure, the ancient words, the ancient creeds, but you fill them with all unbiblical meaning is where I see a lot of folks headed. Hmm. And it's not unlike the LDS church that says gospel, that says grace, that says Jesus, that says father, that says spirit. Yeah. But all the definitions behind the words are all wrong. Hmm. They're non-biblical. They're non-historical. They're non-creedal. And that reality of maintaining the facade while losing the guts yeah. is where I see a lot of people ending up in this deconstruction thing. Not everyone, uh, but people who approach it with a reformative heart, not a revolutionary heart, uh, with a, you've heard it said, but God says unto us, not a, did God really say? Uh, it can be maturation and growth, or it can be losing the guts and maintaining a facade. Man, what a picture! And uh, we'll we'll try to figure out a way to get that uh, posted and share that with everybody. But uh, man, my hope for this podcast for all of us is that um, this is really just helping us think more deeply, uh, with the goal that we would love more deeply, uh, love God more, love others more, uh, be kind of in that process of maturing and reforming. And so, uh, yeah, if you find this helpful, uh, don't like it because we don't care about likes. Seth. <laughs> like, <laughs> share, subscribe, <laughs> comment, post, share. Right. Elevate it. Make it awesome. Uh, no, we're just kidding. But uh, we do hope it's helpful. And uh, we will be back next time on King Culture. See you later.